Hello and welcome to the JS Bach Files, episode 46. Today we're going to talk about one of the most famous of Bach's collections of keyboard pieces, the Partitas. There are six of them altogether. The first five were composed and published between 1725 and 1730, approximately one per year the complete set appearing in 1731 as part one of Bach's Opus One, the first of four collections under that title, some of which contain music we've discussed in earlier episodes, such as the Italian Concerto. Bach obviously thought highly of these works. He was never really aggressive about getting his works published compared to some of his contemporaries, but he apparently felt comfortable with these partitas representing his first offering to a wider public. Entitling the overall series Klavierübung, often translated as keyboard practice, he followed the model of Johann Kuhnau, Bach's predecessor in Leipzig, who in 1689 had published two volumes of keyboard works under the same title. Bach also emulated Kuhnau in calling the individual works partitas, although that designation had often referred to sets of variations in the past, and neither Kuhnau's nor Bach's works are sets of variations per se. As in Kunau's earlier collection, Bach makes use of the standard suite movements of the day, Aleman, Koran, Sarabande, and Jig, but Bach goes further in incorporating a number of extra character movements, or Andirngalaterien, as he referred to them on the title page, such as burlescas, scherzos, capriccio, and passapier, as well as the more typical additions such as airs or minuets. This stylistic diversity, for which Telemann may have served as a model in his earlier collection, The True Music Master, is actually quite striking, and some of these character pieces turn out to me among Bach's most memorable. We're going to focus first on partita number 4, BWV 828. The first movement is designated as an overture, and it's a prime example of a French overture, a form and style which we've seen a number of times in previous works. It begins in cut time, no tempo marking is given, but it's generally assumed that the opening section for movements of this sort is fairly slow and stately. The word pompous is often used to describe movements of this sort, not as a term of disparagement, but rather to reflect the self-conscious dignity and ceremonial grandeur associated with the French court of the mid-Baroque, as exemplified by the music of Lully and others. The piece begins with an ornamented sustained chord, the melody beginning on the third scale degree in the key of D major. In the second half of the measure, in the right hand, we then hear stepwise ascending motion in dotted eighth sixteenth note figures. Are these to be double dotted or over dotted? That is, is the second note in the figure to be played as a sixteenth note or more like a thirty-second note after a double-dotted eighth note? That tradition, the double-dotted tradition, is strongly associated with the French overture style in the middle and into the later Baroque. But is it appropriate here, in a keyboard work by Bach? The performer and the recording I'm using seems to lean in that direction, but there is nothing approaching a consensus on this matter and I'm not sure there ever will be. Meanwhile, still in the first measure, the left hand introduces a quick 30-second note ascending octave run starting in the second beat. These rapid runs leading to an accented beat 
are just as much a part of the traditional French overture style as the tempo and dotted rhythms are, so it's no surprise that all of these components in varied form dominate the first part of the movement. The dotted note melodic phrases are sometimes doubled in tenths or thirds, and the 32nd note scale runs are frequently shifted to the right hand, sometimes reduced to four-note bursts, and at other times extended to longer undulating patterns. Bach stays pretty close to the tonic key for the first several measures, but does eventually move to the key of the dominant five measures before the end of the section. And he introduces a fair number of dissonances, especially on beat one, starting early in the section. Here is the first part, ending on the cadence on the dominant. As you would expect after the repeat of the first section, we encounter a fugal section, beginning in the key of A, where the first section concluded. We shift to 9-8 here, and although there's no indication in the score of a change in tempo, it's generally assumed to be a bit quicker here. The fugal subject starts on an offbeat, on the second eighth note of the measure, which introduces a three-note motive that is immediately repeated twice, each time a step lower. The pattern is interrupted briefly on the first beat of the second bar by a descending sixteenth note scale fragment and then picks up again. The subject first appears in the alto voice, and the imitation in the soprano voice enters after two measures of fourth higher. Against it, the alto voice continues with a counter subject based primarily on the descending sixteenth note scale fragment heard on beat one of the second measure of the subject. As we head back to D major, we hear a brief episode based on this same sixteenth note scale fragment sometimes inverted and sometimes extended into a longer scale-wise passage. Eight measures into the fugal section, the bass enters, with the subject down a couple of octaves from the original, while the accompanying voices continue against it with descending scale fragments in the middle voice and, in the top, a new, more expansive descending line characterized by a series of suspensions. Here's the first part of the fugue, starting with the final measures of the first section of the movement, the shift to 9-8, and the introduction of the fugue subject and its two fugal answers, and then into the episode that follows the third entrance.
After a solid cadence on A major, the texture is thinned out considerably for a long episode, which touches on other key centers. Some distinctive new motives do appear, although patterns derived from the subject, sometimes with the intervals modified, are still in evidence. Here is some of that episode. As you could hear as my excerpt progressed, the texture does not remain thin for very long, and soon streams of 16th note scale passages are being traded from hand to hand. At one point, when we return to D major, something rather like the original subject appears, and is bandied about between the two hands. Shortly after that, the texture gets quite active, with four real voices in play, although the lowest is assigned to a long-sustaining pedal, which would of course decay into silence long before its notated time had expired. The texture thins again as Bach tonicizes a new set of tonal centers briefly, before it becomes more complex again for the final drive to the cadence. It's a somewhat unusual fugue in that the subject in its original form never re-enters in the original key, even though motives from the subject frequently come to the surface. And the opening slower section of the movement, with its several dotted rhythm figures, also fails to rematerialize at the end of the fugal section, although that omission is less remarkable. But we, at any rate, are going to move on to the next movement, an allemande in 4-4 time. It's a long movement, both sections twice the length of a typical allemande. The melody, harmonized with a full D major tonic chord, begins after the traditional eighth note pickup with a half note on the third scale degree tied into the third beat of the measure. But from that point on, until the end of the first section, we hear an almost constant flow of unhurried sixteenth notes, broken occasionally by syncopated figures, tied notes, and later, triplet patterns that take on an important role. Most of the melodic activity is stepwise, but there are some important ascending leaps built into the melody, mostly ascending sixths, which serve as high points and give it an element of distinction. Here's the first part of the first section.
Victor Lederer, who has written perceptively about many of Bach's keyboard works, refers to the melody here as long, articulate, and fervent, deeply meditative in character. Much of this quality can be attributed to Bach's use of strong beat dissonances, often suspension-based, by no means constant, but at times used with great effectiveness. And, near the end of the section, the ascending chromaticism in the bass line, which builds a strong sense of emotional intensity. Here are the last six bars of the first section, containing ascending melodic sequences with the ascending chromatic line in the bass. The second section, starting on the dominant, exploits many of the same motives along with the affective dissonances and surging chromaticism in the bass line, but is even more florid in places, introducing new tonal areas and textures in the process. But we're going to move on now to the next movement. The Courant in 3-2 time also begins with an eighth note upbeat on the third of the scale, followed by a full chord on the tonic, sustained for a beat and a half. This is followed by a rather distinctive motive that fairly dominates the whole movement. Since these movements are, after all, idealized dance forms, it's hardly surprising when a specific rhythmic figure appears again and again. But in this case, the dominance involves not just the rhythmic pattern, but the melodic pattern originally associated with it, or at least the shape of that original melodic pattern. Here's a simplified example without the ornamentation. Its most notable feature is the fanfare-like skipping motion in 16th and 8th notes in the middle of the measure, passing to three-quarter notes that continue to their way up the scale. This idea is immediately imitated in the left hand, but in general this movement is not about imitation per se, and most of the melodic activity is situated in the right hand, with the left hand relegated to an accompanying role. But the persistence of that opening motive in the right hand, often without the ascending quarter notes that followed it in my example, and sometimes stitched together in a series, is indeed impressive. Here's the first part of the movement without the repeat. Bach touches briefly on B minor halfway through the section, 
but ends naturally on the dominant, introducing a new descending motive with across-the-beat ties in the last three measures. The second section, starting on the dominant, but returning quickly to D major, touches on some new tonal centers, often as the result of sequential activity, as you might expect. The primary motive of the first section, that galloping fanfare motive, featuring an eighth note followed by two sixteenths, naturally plays an important role here as well. And in fact, there's more back-and-forth echoing of that motive between the hands than there was in the first section. Here's the first part of the second section. The next movement is an aria, somewhat simpler than the last in terms of texture and melodic organization. After an eighth note upbeat on the fifth of the scale, the initial melodic idea moves within a narrow range in a gently syncopated pattern against a lightly textured left hand accompaniment. The second four measures duplicate the first four melodically over a dominant pedal and somewhat thicker accompanying chords. Here are the first eight measures. The last eight measures of the first section introduce a new idea, related to the first by its initial short-long syncopation pattern, but now replacing the first eighth note with a pair of sixteenths. This new melodic idea, which unfolds in two-measure phrases, first heads up the scale and then meanders back down again in sixteenth notes. The next two bars reproduce the pattern up a fourth, and the following two provide a variant of the pattern another fourth higher, one that is extended with a flow of sixteenth notes that takes us to the end of the section on the dominant. In the second section, the guileless, almost gallant little melody heard in the first section is revealed as having a more serious side, as it leads us first into B minor, and then E minor, and somewhat later into A minor. Here's a little of the longer second section. The next movement is a Sarah Bond in 3-4 time, 
and its rhythmic identity is clearly established in the first two measures. The melody begins again on the third scale degree, harmonized with a full tonic chord. It immediately descends to the tonic and then to a trilled leading tone below it before returning to the tonic note. Rhythmically, the measure begins with the somewhat unusual configuration of two 32nd notes followed by a dotted eighth note. The second measure contrasts sharply, starting again on the third scale degree, down an octave this time. It ascends up the scale with a run of three sixteenths and two 32nd notes, the last of which introduces a C natural not in the key, thereby already tilting us toward G major which materializes, very briefly, in the third measure in a flow of sixteenth notes, although just a couple of beats later, and we're back securely in D major. The motor from beat one of measure one is heard again and again as the first part of the movement progresses, usually at the beginning of a measure, and often inverted. The idea introduced in measure two never really comes into play as an independent motive, although it occurs twice more when the first two measures are recapitulated as a unit later in the movement. A new inverted variant of the first motive is featured in a very distinctive sequential passage, about two-thirds the way through the section. Here is the first 12-measure section in a rhythmically rather free performance. You may have noticed the very expressive chromatic chord Bach introduces right before the cadence on the dominant. It's really not a terribly unusual chord, an inverted half-diminished seventh on the second scale degree in A major, but it nevertheless lends a notable degree of pathos to those final bars. In the second, longer section of the movement, we visit new key centers as usual, but the same motives and sequences continue to dominate. So, we will move on to the next movement, a minuet. It's an elegant and yet playful movement with a heavily ornamented melody beginning on the third scale degree in D major, moving up a step, and eventually peaking on the fifth scale degree on B2 in the next measure, in a manner that roughly parallels the opening melodic motion in the previous movement. As a minuet, this is naturally in 3-4 time but the first four notes could easily be heard as grouping into a measure of four beats followed by one of two beats. Here is a simplified, unornamented version of the first two bars, right hand only.
This metric ambiguity is further reinforced by the top line of the left hand with an across-the-bar suspension, although the lowest voice in the left hand seems to suggest a more conventional three-beats-to-the-measure pattern. I don't want to overstate the case here because the effect of this metric ambiguity is far from dramatic, but it does provide the opening measures with a slightly unusual feel. The next two bars largely erase this ambiguity with an undulating pattern of melodic triplets which eventually comes to rest back on the tonic. Here is the first section all eight bars with the second four measures being largely a reproduction of the first four in the right hand but with the left hand somewhat more active rhythmically. The first section naturally ends on the dominant, and the second section, longer at 20 measures, just as naturally begins there, although it reports back to D major by the fifth measure. Melodically, the first part of this second section, the first 12 bars, is mostly triplet-based, inspired presumably by the triplet patterns first heard in measure 3 of the first section. The left-hand response to the right-hand triplets with scale-wise eighth notes and quarter-note chords for the most part, and true to expectations, we find ourselves making brief visits to other tonal centers in the process, primarily B minor, the relative minor key, but with hints of E minor and G major along the way. Here's the first 12 bars of the second section ending in B minor. These first 12 bars of the second section are followed by a return of the right-hand melody from the 8-measure first section. It's a variant, of course. It begins in B minor rather than D major, but the opening measure of the right-hand melody is a note-for-note -note reproduction, albeit an octave lower this time. As the section unfolds, it clearly draws from the melodic patterns heard in the first section, but it never quite duplicates them exactly and closes in D major rather than in A major, as the first section does. We've seen things like this many times before. It's sort of a rounded binary form, when the second section begins not only in a new key, but with a new melodic idea, but finishes by bringing back the melodic idea from the first section. It's a little different than usual here, since Bach brings back that original idea in B minor, very briefly, rather than the original key of D major, but the basic idea is the same. Here are the last few bars of the second section leading into the varied return of the eight measure first section. The final movement of partita number four is a gigue. No surprise there, although there are a few somewhat unusual things about this movement. 
It's in 916 time, and it begins with a lively six-measure fugue subject, which begins by moving up and down the D major tonic triad, adding a chromatic C natural to it already in the second bar, just as in the Sarabande movement. And then moving on to a new motive which mixes lower neighbor figures, descending fifths, and ascending scale fragments. It's immediately repeated down a step. The last two bars of the subject, all 16th notes, consist of a descending 7th chord on the dominant, followed by an ascending scale line that directs us to A major, where the first fugal answer comes in. When the left hand enters with imitation at the fifth in the tenor line, the right hand continues with a countersubject largely based on the last two bars of the subject. After a brief episode where no imitation is in play, the subject enters again, this time in the bass voice, duplicating the subject an octave lower. This plays against a countermelody that makes some use of the original countersubject motives, but which eventually lapses into a slower-moving two-part line. We'll hear that much. Once the lowest voice has completed its imitation, we move to a free exploitation of motives from the subject, with the motives from bars 1 and 2, the ascending and descending triads, and those from bars 3 and 4 of the subject, tossed back and forth between the hands. We're going to finish this section in the key of the dominant, A major, as you would expect, but Bach gives us brief glimpses of other tonal areas as well, often arrived at by sequential motion and even makes a half-serious feint toward A minor in the closing bars of that section. The second section of a gigue will often begin with a theme that resembles the first subject of the first section, but in inversion, as in, for example, partita number 6. That is not the case here, however, although there are certain elements of the first subject incorporated into this one. This time the subject, which begins in the left hand, is made up of a steady flow of 16th notes, mostly stepwise, although the first bars do exhibit some large leaps, descending and ascending, of the sort not uncommon in jig themes. But after six bars, when the subject is imitated up a fourth in the right hand, we're back in D major at this point, we meet with something we may not have expected in the left hand, as it continues against the imitation in the right hand. It is somewhat unexpected, but it is not new. It is, in fact, the original subject from the first section, now put into play here as something of a contrasubject to the opening theme of the second section. It serves this function for five measures before breaking off and entering into a series of sequentially based motivic exchanges with the right hand, based on an ascending fifth followed by a descending scale. Not surprisingly, this figure is used to race us through several key centers. 
Even when the second section subject attempts to return to the fray in the left hand, at least the first four bars of it, Bach has cleverly doctored it in such a way that the tonality remains fluid. By the way, the first section subject never makes a complete return in its original form, but the main motivic ideas from it dominate the final measures of the movement. Here is the entire second section without repeat. Partita number four is sometimes described as the most elaborate and ambitious of the six partitas, with the overture, allemande, and saraband movements in particular singled out for their depth and complexity. There are, of course, several movements from the five remaining partitas worthy of our attention, but we're going to turn our focus now to the opening movements. Several commentators have made the point that each of the original six partitas opens with a different sort of introductory movement, and in every case, these to some extent set the tone for that particular partita. Partita number one in B-flat major, BWV 825, begins with a preludium. The term by itself is not terribly descriptive. It implies a movement that does not stand alone, that leads to something else, but it is not a specific style indicator the way that, for example, the term overture is, especially since in this context, the word probably evokes the French overture form and style. But as a title, preludium is not at all precise as a stylistic indicator, and it turns out that this particular one displays a rather serene personality, very much in the mode of an introduction, and demonstrates some fairly subtle points of interest which may suggest that what is to come will be more notable for its elegance than for its dramatic content. In common time, we begin over a tonic pedal, a slowly unfolding ascending line, which moves up an octave to the tonic note. It does so fairly directly, but not completely so, moving up in eighth notes for the most part, although the melody surrounds the ascending motion with so many decorative embellishments that the result is a rhythmic flow dominated by sixteenth notes and even the occasional thirty-second note lower neighbor figure. Here is a much simplified and stripped-down reduction to two parts of the first two bars showing this inherent melodic motion. This ascending motion, with the melodic line frequently doubled in sixths and occasionally thirds, is the most important organizing feature of the movement, but the other most readily noticeable component is a five-note rhythmic motive, 
a short long, short rhythm, usually manifest as two thirty-second notes followed by an eighth and then another two thirty-second notes. These motives make use of stepwise motion, can be heard as ascending or descending, and are often chained together. We hear the motive on beat four of measure two, after the ascending line I just described has reached the upper octave, and it dominates the action for several measures after that. Here is a simplified version of this second important motivic idea. Of course, Bach makes use of other ideas, rhythmic and melodic, as well. And he also modulates to G minor, the relative minor, and F major, the key of the dominant, among others. But the two ideas I just referred to tend to dominate. Here is the first part of the movement. The opening movement of partita number two in C minor is in common time and labeled as a sinfonia and marked grave adagio. The term sinfonia of Italian origin is a standard designation for opening movements, particularly of orchestral works or operas in the 18th century. But the title actually covers a fairly wide variety of styles and types. Bach had even used it as a title for his three-part inventions, as we noted in an earlier episode. But that usage was something of a wild card, and never widely adopted by others. In this case, the indication of grave, especially in connection with the first section's reliance on repeated dotted rhythm motives, and the use of reiterated tonic notes in the bass line, which serve as a pedal beneath the first several chords, these things combine to suggest the solemnity of the French overture style, although it's been pointed out by Victor Lederer that the use of the term adagio in the tempo marking does serve to somewhat soften the gravity of the mood. Here are the first seven measures.
In a typical French overture, we would at this point expect to now encounter a faster, more rhythmically active fugal section. The section that follows is somewhat faster, it's marked andante, and it is more rhythmically active, with its flow of sixteenths, eighth, and thirty-second notes occasionally interrupted by syncopated rhythms. So there's a bit more rhythmic energy here, but at this point no fugal imitation in sight. The left hand is relegated to a slower moving line in eighth notes, which serves as the harmonic anchor for the faster moving lines above it. Only near the end of this section does the left hand increase its rhythmic activity, and then only briefly. Soon after that we reach a fermata on a full diminished seventh chord, and a final, somewhat dissonant, cadenza-like flurry of activity that takes us to the end of the section. Here is the first part of the second section. So this movement may have begun rather in the vein of a French overture, but the second, somewhat faster section did not demonstrate the typical fugal imitation. But of course we're not finished. We now passed from the andante section in common time to an entirely new section, still in C minor, although beginning on a dominant chord in that key, in 3-4 time, and marked allegro, a couple of steps faster in terms of tempo. And we finally hear that fugal imitation we probably expected earlier. It's a simple enough fugue subject, but full of energy. The subject is imitated a fourth lower in the left hand, although in the alto voice, in the fourth measure, against a continuing line in the right hand, which is notable for its large ascending leaps tied to syncopations. In the brief episode that follows, we head first toward F minor, but then quickly through E flat major on the way back to C minor. There we hear the second imitative answer, down an octave from the first. Here's the beginning of the fugal section. My excerpt carried us into a longer episode with some notable descending sequences. As the movement proceeds, the subject periodically returns in a different key, the last time back in the tonic key, eight measures before the end in the left-hand bass line. We never again hear a full-blown and immediate imitation of the subject, but as usual, motives from it appear constantly in both voices. So the form of this symphonia turns out to be French overture-like in some ways, 
notably the style of the opening section, but in other ways more akin to an older style of toccata, of the sort which may well contain a fugal section, but presents multiple contrasting sections before we get to it. And speaking of toccatas, the first movement of Partita No. 6 in G major is identified as a toccata, and it very clearly shows its historical antecedents as a touch piece with an improvisatory flow in its opening section. We hear flurries of 16th notes and 32nd notes in repeated patterns divided between the two hands and often climaxing with an accented non-harmonic tone on the third beat of the measure. After a cadence on the dominant, we then hear a new descending pattern in eighths in the left hand against repeated patterns of sixteenths in the right hand. After two measures, these two voices switch roles and then the opening swirling figures return. Let's hear the first part of this first section. As we've seen in other toccatas in previous episodes, this sort of very free, improvisatory-leaning introduction is quite frequently followed by a fugue, and that is indeed the case here. It's an interesting and quite distinctive fugue subject, presented in the left hand and beginning with a three-note motive, all eighth notes followed by an eighth rest, starting on an upbeat and featuring an on-the-beat mordant. This first motive is immediately repeated a step higher. As you could hear, the motive appears to start up again for the third time, a step higher as before, but this time it continues on to a new idea which makes use of some distinctive leaps of a sixth, first descending and later ascending, before it picks up momentum with an undulating flow of sixteenth notes. The imitation in the right-hand alto line at the fifth starts with an upbeat to measure four. In its last measure, the alto line introduces a new syncopated figure, which is to play a major role in the episodes ahead but we're not finished with the actual imitation of the fugue subject yet, and a little later, the right-hand piano line enters with its imitation, an octave higher than the original. We'll hear the opening imitation and a little bit into the episode that follows it.
To say that the opening motives of the subject permeate the rest of this fugal section would be an understatement. The texture remains quite busy for the most part, with those opening motives now frequently doubled in thirds and sixths to thicken the texture even more. But the movement does not end with fugal imitation, but, like many toccatas, it returns to the first, free-flowing section with which it began. We are not in the original key of E minor initially, but rather B minor, a fourth lower, and it is not a note-for-note -note recapitulation. But eventually, we return to the original tonic key, and the movement concludes in the same spirit of virtuoso improvisation with which it began. Partita number three in A minor, BWV 827, begins with a fantasia, but the movement turns out to be something a little different than the title suggests. Here is a fantasia that is not improvisatory in nature and features a two-part texture that suggests the metric consistency associated with many of Bach's inventions. It is not fugal, but it does make use of canonic imitation in the opening measures and elsewhere. Here are the first 17 bars, cadencing in A minor. At times, the melody splits into two implied lines, something we've seen many times before. And in a couple of places, Bach largely repeats the right-hand melodic motive while the left hand descends by step below it. Here's another excerpt beginning where the first ended. And, of course, Bach modulates. The passage you just heard in which the left-hand bass descends by step against a repeated melodic figure in the right hand is still securely in A minor, but just a few measures later we modulate to G major and after that E minor, both standard modulatory targets for a movement in A minor. The opening melodic idea, especially the large descending leap from the end of the first measure to the beginning of the second, is heard in multiple contexts, frequently with the descending leap move to the first beat of the second measure. The main point is that the piece is really very tightly knit from a motivic point of view, and therefore just the opposite of what you might expect from a movement designated as a fantasia. The final opening movement we're going to look at is the preambulum, which begins partita number five, 
BWV 829 in G major and 3-4 time. I mentioned earlier that the term preludium was not a very specific designation in terms of form or musical style, and it will come as no surprise that the same can be said for preambulum, which is again simply a substitute term for prelude. But this particular movement is rather different than the preludium we looked at earlier. A number of commentators have pointed to its quirky and purposely humorous personality. Certainly it contains toccata-like features, notably the rapid 16th note scale runs split between the hands, constructed initially on a descending bass line, and the descending chordal arpeggios based on sequentially dropping fifths. But the punctuating eighth note chords in the first two bars, and interspersed elsewhere throughout the movement, are almost purposely trivial, or at least light-hearted. Here is the opening. Following this rather free opening, we hear a more metrically precise section in two-part counterpoint, based on a sequentially repeated ascending pattern. Here is that passage leading into a return of the rapid arpeggios traded off between the hands, but this time primarily ascending, and after that, the rather quirky eighth note chords now heard in E minor. We then encounter another passage of rapidly ascending scales, similar to the one that began the movement, but now starting in E minor. But this version of the 16th note runs soon becomes more complex, as the single line divides into two, and the left hand is frequently moving in contrary motion with the right hand. This eventually leads to another version of the second section, but this time built on a descending bass line. Then, as you heard, the chords reappear in the left hand, 
while the right hand keeps itself busy with its own ascending scale passages. The movement continues on its merry way, mostly with new modulations and reworkings and recombinations of motives introduced in the first half. We, however, are going to leave the movement at this point, and in fact, all six of the original partitas. This collection of works may not have enjoyed quite the popularity of the French suites or maybe even the English suites among performers or listeners over the years, but the variety of types and styles of movements is, as you can see even from my limited examination, quite dazzling. And this may in fact be the reason that Bach chose these pieces to be the first to represent him in published form. In recent episodes, we've taken a look at some of the cantatas for solo voices, and our next episode will highlight Bach's solo cantatas for alto.